One thing that I want us to begin with this morning as we consider the story of Exodus is this by Eugene Peterson. He says, the primary reason for a book is to put a writer into relation with readers so that we can listen to his or her stories and find ourselves in them. Listen to his or her songs and sing along with them. Listen to his or her arguments and argue with them. Listen to his or her answers and question them. The scriptures are almost entirely this kind of book. If we read them impersonally, with an information-gathering mind only, we miss them. This is a very personal book. It is a very personal story, ultimately of who God is, but even of God's people like Moses. So we're considering the story of Exodus. We're considering the person of Moses and God's people. And what we know is that Moses himself, on a personal level, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Exodus, in order to not only bring us into a relationship with him as the writer, but ultimately to bring us into a relationship with God as the ultimate author of this story, this story of the Exodus, this story of God's people, which we've said over these weeks as we've been in this series, that their story is our story. Their story begins at the very beginning of the book with enslavement and oppression and a crying out for deliverance. And then it's met with a promise of deliverance. And then that promise of deliverance from God is met with the identification of a deliverer who will meet God's people in the midst of their enslavement and their impression and who will deliver them out of this. And that man's name is Moses. And last week, we spent some detail digging into and looking at Moses' grappling with and struggling with his call to be the deliverer of God's people. And we related it to our own call in life, how we struggle through our own insecurities to accept what God has called us to do in life. Yet God uses broken, fallible people to accomplish his purposes. And so today we move into where we see Moses actually accepting obediently this call to be the deliverer of God's people. And at the very end of chapter 4, we will start reading in Exodus 5, but at the very end of Exodus chapter 4, Moses goes before God's people and he pitches a plan, God's plan, God's word spoken to him. He speaks to them and it is met with approval. It is met with cheering that then culminates in worship. And it's a great scene. Moses has obediently accepted the call. God's people are excited about what's going on. They culminate this excitement in worship. And then you'll see things change. Exodus chapter 5, if you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word. I don't say this apologetically. I say it descriptively. Old Testament narratives are not short. And so our scripture readings in this series just can't be short. Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to him, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. 
And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters, so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered all throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task in making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the, name, the same number of bricks. For the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They, that is, the people of Israel, met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. As they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One author writes, As human beings, we're trapped. We're trapped by our physical limitations and our responsibilities, and we're trapped by our fears. Regardless of your lifestyle, the truth is you're governed by something. Because of this, we all seek respite from the pain of existence. Because of this, we all seek respite from the pain of existence. We all have various ways of doing so. We all seek longer lasting and more rewarding ways to transcend the pain of human existence. We all seek long lasting and rewarding ways to transcend the pain of human existence. Don't we? In so many ways, that's the MO of life. This is what crafts ideologies. This is what crafts philosophies. This is what crafts religions. It's this idea to transcend the pain 
of human existence. Very infamously, this really is the root of Buddhism. Buddhism was born out of a young prince who grew up in a king's castle, sheltered from the entire world, until one day, an infamous day, when he went out to the world and saw sights that he didn't want to see. He saw an old man. He saw a sad man. He saw a dying man. And he met a Hindu mystic who told him the key to life. And this prince, who became the father of Buddhism, then espouses these four noble truths about Buddhism and about the world. Life is suffering. Number one. Number two. The cause of suffering is desire. Number three, contingent upon number two, the way to end suffering is to end desire. And then number four is to seek this final state of nirvana. So that's all we got to do to transcend the pain of human existence is just to end suffering by ending desire. The problem with that is we can't end suffering. Nor, if we're honest, can we end desire. So we're back to this idea of being trapped in a world where we long to transcend the pain of human existence. And it's in this moment, in this feeling, not only do we find ourselves this morning, if we're honest, this is exactly where we find Israel in the story of Exodus. It's reminiscent of what Keats says at the beginning through his ode to a nightingale, which is intentionally placed in our bulletins this morning because it's sad. He says this, the weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here, where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow. Where but to think is to be full of sorrow. Rabbi Harold Kushner, years ago in a famous book with a very compelling and catchy title, wrote, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. While you might find yourself being critical of the content within, I think if you're honest, it's hard to be critical of the question. We really do all kind of wonder that reality, do we not, to some degree or another? And then especially when we learn a little bit more about his own history that precipitated the book, he had a son contract a rare disease that caused his son's death as a teenager. And in response to that, he writes the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He said this, I believed that I was following God's ways and doing his work. How could this be happening to my family? If God existed, if he was minimally fair, let alone loving and forgiving, how could he do this to me? And even if I could persuade myself that I deserved this punishment for some sin of neglect or pride that I was not aware of, 
On what grounds did Aaron, my son, have to suffer? It's an honest question. It's a hard reality that we live in. And it's in this reality that we find not only God's people collectively in Exodus, but it's in this reality that we find God's chosen deliverer, Moses, in a very precarious position. What I want us to see overarchingly this morning from Exodus chapter 5 is simply this. Our faith will be tested through trials. The Christian faith is a faith that will be tested through trials. Yet God calls us in the midst of suffering to remain faithful. He also causes us to grapple with this reality. Our obedience is not always synonymous with fruitfulness and blessing. And that's one of, I think, the hardest things about these stories. And we'll get to that in a moment where I do really believe Moses was trying to be obedient and to serve the Lord, yet his efforts were not met. His efforts of obedience were not met with fruitfulness. The truth is that in this life, through the testing of our faith and trials, sometimes our obedience begets more suffering, which is a hard, hard pill to swallow. It's a hard reality. The truth is there's no such thing as untested faith. Peter says this, In chapter 1 of his first epistle, verse 7, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold through faith, or though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Some of you would be familiar with James. In his epistle, writes in chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Or the Apostle Paul in Colossians that some of us have been studying in small groups writes in chapter 1. Again, it's interesting that all these guys are laying this out in chapter 1. It just occurs to me in these letters. Verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice... In my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. And then one commentator, N.T. Wright, the Bishop of Durham, says this about Colossians 1, which would also be indicative of all the scriptures I just read that takes us into this acceptance of suffering. Paul is suffering, he says, in some way not merely on behalf of the young church that he serves, but actually he's suffering instead of it, which is a unique instance in that letter. Finally, we would be wrong to think of suffering only in terms of the direct outward persecution that professing Christians sometimes undergo because of their faith. This is the main thing I want us to hear right here. The church must, if it is true, always be ready for such persecution and must support in prayer and practical help those who face external persecution. However, all Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another. If not outwardly, then inwardly, through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness, the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibilities, amen, for a family or a church, the constant doubts and insecurities which accompany 
the obedience of faith and, quote, the thousand natural shocks that the flesh is heir to, taken up as they are within the call to follow Christ. This is just a reality whether we want it to be or not. I promise it brings me no joy to stand before you on a morning like this and on more mornings than just this and proclaim this reality. But God said it would be like this. And this is where we have to know. That doesn't necessarily comfort us completely, but on one hand, it helps us to have accurate expectations. I mean, Jesus in the gospel says, if you want to follow me, begin with denying yourself. And then next, take up your cross. And that's not something that does not involve suffering. I can remember after September 11th, I was living in St. Louis uh, for graduate school, that is September 11th. 2001. And of course, the face of the world, as far as we knew it at that point in our generation, had really changed in a dramatic way. And there were ripple effects and implications of this all over the place. One of the ways that I personally experienced this were through a group of friends that I had through a church where I was serving, and then also with some colleagues in graduate school who had signed up for the Air National Guard or the Army National Reserves. And essentially, the deal with that was it was a funding strategy to help with their education. And what they signed up for explicitly was one weekend a month, two weeks a year. And then there was some fine print as well. Of course, that fine print did not include specifically the tragedy that happened on our soil on 9-11-01. But as a result of that tragedy, my friends that were just like me, essentially, just like many of you, that is, if you are a civilian, were just trying to help school get paid for. And next thing they knew, literally, everyone that I knew was shipped to the Middle East. I had one close friend who had no prior military training, but he was in graduate school. He had excelled academically. He had showed some level of leadership, I guess, on the one week and a month, two weeks a year, you know, in the middle of Missouri somewhere that then put him thrust into a situation where he speaks of being in the heart of Baghdad in a tent leading men seeking to sleep at night with bullets flying over the canvas of his tent. One week in a month, two weeks a year, no big deal. Do some marching, make some camaraderie earn some money for school. They were awakened to a whole new reality. In many ways, I wonder how much that might be indicative of our experience and faith with Christ, or even more specifically, contextually this morning, how much Moses must have felt like this. At the end of Exodus 5, you get this sense where Moses, and we'll look at this, is asking God, hey, what's going on here? And as if God tells him, What is going on here is exactly what I told you would be going on here. If it was, I used to have a boss that would say, if it was easy, Brent, anyone could do it. I didn't like it when he said that. I don't think God speaks like that, definitely not condescendingly to Moses. But the truth is, to walk in faith is to have our faith tested. To walk in faith is to walk in suffering. A.W. Tozer says, people think life is a playground when in reality it's a battleground. 
But this is what we bargained for, right? Or if you're contemplating Christianity this morning, I know this is not a great sales pitch, but it's an honest sales pitch. Who doesn't want the blessings without the battles? Who doesn't want the glory without the suffering? The problem is that's not biblical Christianity, nor is it Jesus. Ken Geyer in a book called The Reflective Life says this, Honestly, I want to be like Christ. But honestly, I want to be like the Christ who turned water into wine, not the Christ who thirsted on the cross. I want to be the clothed Christ, not the one whose garment was stripped and gambled away. I want to be the Christ who fed the 5,000, not the one who hungered for 40 days in the wilderness. I want to be the free Christ, walking through the wheat fields with his disciples, not the imprisoned Christ who was deserted by them. What kind of Christ do you want to be? Well, Moses is learning a hard lesson that we all need to learn, which is our faith will never go untested. It will always experience resistance. And that's really just two simple things. And a little more detail I want us to consider is I want us to consider the resistance we have or that we must face to suffering. And then also I want us to look at our response to the resistance that we experience. The first level of resistance that Moses experiences in this narrative is resistance from the outside. He's got a leader who's problematic, let's say. He's got a truly xenophobic, prideful, arrogant, naive, sarcastic leader in this particular Pharaoh at the time who does not respect God's people, which inherently also means he does not respect God. And of course, this is seen, if you heard at the beginning of the text, almost sarcastically, the Lord God never heard of him. Well, our story goes on to make sure that by the end he will have heard of this Lord God that he is mocking at this point. But nevertheless, Moses has to deal with this. Moses has to deal with this external, extenuating circumstance where he's got a leader who has his people captive. He's called to deliver his people, and this leader won't give him the time of day. And the circumstances as well are going from bad to worse. Did you pick up on all that? And I don't know if that was easy to follow, and I know it was a longer text of Scripture, the bottom line was they were enslaved and oppressed, and one of their main jobs was to make bricks. Now, I don't know how much physical labor you've done in your life. I've done, I don't even think I've done my fair share, but I've done some physical labor. And I'll tell you what about physical labor. It's not fun, right? Like, it's one of these things where you're like, um, I think I'm going to college, right? And Israel is having this experience for like, not like a short-term mission trip, you know, where they help pour a driveway for an orphanage. I did that and that was like enough. But I mean, it's as if they're pouring driveways for orphanages for years. They're making bricks and it's terrible. And they're oppressed and they're enslaved. And Moses goes to seek to deliver them out of this to this egomaniac leader. And he says, you know what? Not only will I not do what you're asking, when I look at your people, you know what I think about them? They're lazy. They're idle. They don't have anything better to do. So you know what? We're not bringing them straw anymore for the bricks. Now, I don't know tons about brick making, but the commentators say it's really hard to make bricks that will stand without straw. 
And so not only are they not going to have the straw, which is the appropriate supply and material brought to them, there seems to be indication in the text that there's not going to be straw available. And so they're going to have to use a bad substitute for straw that the text tells us is stubble. I'll only go into that detail in the sense that Moses really here is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to appeal, but he's having to deal with resistance from this particular leader and this resistance from these circumstances and what's happening in the midst of deliverance. And what started out with our reference in the scripture intro so well at the end of chapter 4 has gone from bad to worse. And it's hard to continue to keep the faith in the midst of resistance, especially with the reality of what I already alluded to. Moses is trying, like he engages in this battle with the Lord in the beginning. No, I can't do it. I'm unfit. I can't speak. You remember, that's what we looked at last week. I'm the wrong guy. He finally answered, just find somebody else. Done. Well, there's progression through God's gentle determination, which is gracious on his part. And so Moses is like, fine, okay, I'll do it. And the Lord's like, by the way, you don't have to do it by yourself. I'll give you Aaron. And so he speaks. And then he goes and he does this. And I really believe Moses is trying to do right. But his obedience does not beget fruitfulness. You can't help but to think that Moses is like, what else do you want me to do? Like I'm out here busting it. For what? I can't help but to think just for a moment of comedic relief, but I think a poignant point. Surely you remember one of the greatest movies from the 80s, the original, and in my opinion, the only Karate Kid, right? Karate Kid desires to make his way in the world to fit into a new high school, a Jersey boy in California, and the way he's going to do that is through karate, and of course he meets this Jedi master, Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi is going to put him through his own personal karate training boot camp which is pretty unconventional. It basically includes him just serving as an indentured servant, Mr. Miyagi, like at his house and on his property with his cars. And Daniel's son is doing it day after day after day till finally he just cracks. And he just kind of has one of these moments. And this is where I think these moments where we find Moses. And he's like, what gives? I thought you were supposed to teach me karate. And Mr. Miyagi was like, stand the floor. And he's like, that's not karate. And then he does this, right? And then all this stuff that he's been making him do, sand the floor, wax the car, paint the house, actually starts to show Daniel's son in a pretty, not so silly, but I would say pretty cool and even profound way that what he has been putting him through actually is accomplishing what he desired for it to accomplish, but just not in the way that he wanted to accomplish it. And I really do think that's what's going on here with Moses. To some degree, he's asking God, what gives? I'm trying. And it's as if the Lord says, well, Moses, you still have a lot to learn. And not to pick on Moses too much this morning, because on our best days, we're probably Moses. But something that we can highlight from Moses is, while he was trying to be obedient, he also made some critical errors I'll enumerate them in three ways. He took the wrong delegation with him. Did you see in the text, it was just he and Aaron. But if you remember from chapter 3, which I'm sure you do, verse 18, right? God said, Moses, take Aaron and 
a group of elders with you. And so he took the wrong delegation. He also had the wrong terminology. He did not refer to God's people in the accurate way, and he made things confusing, and he made things more threatening by mixing up Israel and the Hebrews. So he had the wrong delegation. He had the wrong terminology, according to Alec Motier. And then lastly, he had the wrong wrong request and simply stated his request was too big. He asked for the whole thing. What he was supposed to be asking for in detail was a blip on the radar, a three-day journey of worship. And essentially what Moses ends up getting out of his mouth is national emancipation. His intent was good, but his whole agenda and approach were wrong. You business-minded folks out there will appreciate Moses here as an entrepreneur failing miserably. Let's think about it like this. So if you're an entrepreneur and you need to fund your deal, you have a plan, you do what experts call create, you create what experts call a pitch deck, right? And your pitch deck essentially includes your story of analysis, like what the problem is, what the solution is, and how much, you know, bank everybody's going to get off your pitch deck if you allow this business plan, you know, to go forward. So Moses comes before Pharaoh with his pitch deck, identifies a problem, identifies a solution, and somehow, I guess, decides how much this could end up benefiting his people, etc. Well, the truth is, it bombs. IPO bombs. Front page of the finance paper in early Israel during this day. And so Moses is met with this external resistance through these things. But not only is that resistance that he's met with externally, there's also some internal resistance. Did you pick up on this? And this is what's so hard about this passage too. Not only is Moses struggling with Pharaoh, which is enough, but then as a result of the IPO failing and his pitch deck bombing and his intent being good, but nothing else going well with this, he has to come back. I don't know what that walk was like. The text doesn't tell us, but it was probably somewhat of a walk of shame. And he comes back and he sees God's people. And did you catch up the text, what they say to him around verse 20? Hey, Moses, you stink. Or more specifically, they said, you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. What are you doing? And so it's as if it's not enough for him to face the resistance of this king. But now he has to face the resistance of his own people. I think that would be considered a trial of faith. Our faith is tried when we experience external resistance. For example, it's hard to be a Christian today in our world. It's hard to be labeled irrelevant and extreme. And we'll just throw in intolerant and a bunch of other bad words in there. If you believe things like the Bible, it's hard to face that. It's also even harder to face the resistance that we experience in our own communities, in our own families, in our own lives, amongst our friends. And that's what Moses has to deal with too, which is extremely testing and trying for his faith. So then this leads us to our last consideration What is his response to be? So if suffering is just a reality in the world at large, and it's a reality in this existence, what we conclude is that our faith will be tested and tried. 
And that's the way that God said it would be, and we have to accept that and walk through that and deal with it, which is actually a better option than acting like it doesn't exist, for example. Because God's also promised us his presence, but he's promised us that our faith will experience trials. And so we've looked at in a little more detail the resistance that Moses experiences. And really the last thing I want us to see here is how Moses responds to the trial. How Moses responds to the resistance that's both external and internal. And we see Moses' response in verses 22 and 23 of our text. After Moses has failed spectacularly. One could say, I mentioned an article from the Wall Street Journal last week with that title. The truth about failing spectacularly, and one of the excerpts from the article simply said this, the main reason veteran leaders rarely fail dramatically is that they have failed before. One of the main reasons veteran leaders rarely fail dramatically is because they have failed so much before. And that's what's pretty cool that we're going to see a corner turned with Moses. This is him failing dramatically early on. But Moses starts by God's grace to catch his stride. And it actually begins with this response, even though this might be counterintuitive. Then Moses, in verse 22, it's in your bulletin. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, before I even tell you what he said, here's the gospel. Moses turned to the Lord. And guess who was there? The Lord. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his, this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So out of all the things that Moses has done wrong, by God's grace, one thing that I would actually say that Moses is doing right, right now in response is, he said to the Lord, Now, what he said to the Lord needs to be held in check. But I can tell you this, and I can promise you this, God can handle your questions. God's not insecure like we are. God might be offended occasionally at times, though there's no clear indication that God is offended here. In fact, I can find you a myriad of examples where God clearly encourages questions. And God has plenty of room for our doubts. And God can receive our confusion and our perplexity and our shame and our betrayal and our hurt and our anger. What God really wants is not us to have everything figured out. What God really wants is to have us. Moses doesn't have it all figured out. He's got a myriad of questions. But what Moses has at this point and what God has is they have each other. It's back to that idea of it being personal that I read about from Eugene Peterson in the very beginning. The response is a very personal response. God's timing, one commentator says, only sometimes coincides with our expectations. And his idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincide with our idea about how much we can take. We'll talk more about this another day, but it's my sense in Scripture that God regularly gives us more than we can handle. And what do we do with that? We come to Him. And we ask Him questions. And we ask ask Him to help us. We do things like what we're getting ready to sing about in the hymn, Jesus, I come. 
Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Out of my sickness, out of my wanting, out of my sin, Jesus, I come. Out of my shameful failure and loss, out of earth's sorrows, out of life's storms, out of distress, Jesus, I come. Out of unrest, out of myself, out of despair. And then in verse 4, out of the fear and dread of the tomb, out of the depths of ruin untold, into the peace of thy sheltering fold, ever thy glorious face to behold, Jesus, I come. What do we do in the midst of suffering? As our faith is tested, we come to Christ who tells us, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we